Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Dr. Robert Foreman. He wrote the book, Enlightenment Ain't What It's Cracked Up To Be This Year. Very compelling title, and I'm looking forward to exploring it more. Um, hi, Robert. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. What can I tell you? I am a retired college professor. I taught for about 20 years. I taught comparative religions. At, at, at about 10, 15 years ago, I founded something called the Forge Institute for Spirituality and Social Change, um, and it has established a guild of people like yourself who are actively helping others grow spiritually. And we've also started something called Soul Jazz, which I might talk about today, uh, which is a program that's designed to help people sort of find a level of intimacy and connection that they might not always not know how to find. Um which I regard as a spiritual act. What else can I tell you? I drive a motorcycle that's probably too big. I play the blues guitar. Um, I have two children, one grandson whom I love dearly, and I'm very happy to be here. Good. We're happy to have you. Uh, How did you come to write this book? It's actually an interesting story. Um, The book is about um, a, a, a kind of transformation I went through beginning when I was 24, and it's continued to today. Um, and uh, a friend of mine started asking me about my spiritual experiences or spiritual shifts, and uh, she was so taken that she asked me if she could interview me because she was interested in experiences like enlightenment. And um, so I said, sure, on the condition that I could record it. And so we had probably 10, 12 hours of conversation that I recorded. Um and it was interesting to say it all out. I had never told anybody the whole story before. And uh, from that, that became draft one of this book. But the reason that I wrote the book is I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what enlightenment is about, about what the spiritual path is about. Um, and I wanted to see if I couldn't help some of that. I wanted to see if I couldn't help people recognize that one of the things that stands in the way of our spiritual development and our personal development is that we kind of have fantasies about what all this is supposed to do and how it's supposed to change us. And for me, letting go of those fantasies and sort of rethinking what the spiritual life actually does has been the challenge of my life. And also I thought maybe I had something to say to people about how to rethink their own spiritual lives. There's a line in the back of the book that, that you know, what if you were pursuing the wrong goal in the spiritual life? And it turns out that just millions of people are sort of after the wrong thing. And I think that um, it's helpful, and I've heard it's helpful for people to hear that there is another way to conceive of the spiritual life than just this sort of pie-in-the-sky uh, aspiration that, we're, that our whole life is going to get to be perfect. How did you begin your interest in spirituality? Oh, that's, you do it? yeah, that's... Um, 
And my, my story, and it's, it's in the book, but my story starts with um, when I was 18, 20, I was really messed up. I was very depressed, probably clinically depressed. I had something called global anxiety disorder. I was suicidal. I mean, I had the whole nine yards. And um, well, I think the only thing that separates me from a lot of my friends at that time who were also depressed was that I had this determination to figure out what on earth was wrong and to do something about it. And I think that in that sense, I feel very lucky, even though I was really struggling when I was 20, I never gave up the hope that I could do something about it. So I took up psychotherapy, um, which didn't do much for me at the time. Uh, I took up Zen Buddhism. I, I, I studied philosophy thinking that would help. It made it worse. Um, I did yoga. I threw whatever I could think of to do is what I did. And finally, I started Transcendental Meditation when I was 1969, so I was 22. Um, and that seemed to work for me. And I, it doesn't work for everybody, but it does work quite well for some folks. It worked very well for me. And so I got very serious about it very fast. Um, I, I have continued to meditate every day since 1969. So 44 years I've been meditating. Um, and amazingly enough, I still haven't missed a day. Um, and, but I went off on retreats, and I went off on weekend retreats, and then week-long retreats, and a month retreat. And finally I went off on a nine-month retreat, and then following that, another three-month retreat. So I was very dedicated to this stuff. I was very serious about it. And it was during that time that the, the shifts that happened to me started to take place. What kind of shifts? Ah, well, the book describes this. Um, I, I think I can sort of tell you the sort of high point. Uh, I mean, there was sort of a series of things that happened that I described in the book. But let me just tell you about the one that was sort of the major shift for me. Um, one day, it was probably in December, uh, so I went to this I went to this retreat starting in October, and we meditated there for between 6 and 12 hours a day, so it was quite serious. Um, and then probably about two, three months into this thing, um, I noticed that there was one little, I don't know quite how to describe it, like a tube in the back of my head that went from being, as it were, um, noisy as if you have static or as if you have like pins and needles in a certain section of your body. So way back there was this like staticky, noisy area. And then all of a sudden one day it was like a little zipper. So something inside went and just, it was dead silent after that. And when I say dead silent, that sounds bad. It was just quiet. It was just had gone from being noisy to being quiet. And um, then maybe three, four days later, Another little tube or a little circuit in there, just to the left, just to the right of that tube. This, the first one happened on the far left of the back of my head, and then one to the right goes, and then it was silent. When you say noisy, do you mean there was a tension, or what does that mean? Before that time, I would say it was as if I had um, pins and needles back there. Not noisy pins and needles, very quiet. The kind of thing you never notice. You would never notice unless it went away. It was just like a kind of background static. It's more like that. Or imagine on the radio, when you're listening to the radio, you hear the radio and you hear it pretty good. But if, you, if you're listening in the background, you can hear a little sort of like crackling kind of quality. It was at that level. It was not obvious. It was not strong. But it was very much there, always there. And then one day it just goes, and it's gone. 
in that little area. Now, nothing else was changing at the time, but in that little area, this changed. It was just went just absolutely quiet. Um, and all the pins and needles, thinking, whatever it was, just from that area, just disappeared. And then over the next three, four weeks, I don't know, I wasn't keeping track, but over the next three, four weeks, another tube would go, and then another tube would go. And at some point I realized, probably midway through this process now, the silence is on the left side, but on the right side it's the way it's always been. I, I began to feel like I was kind of listing as I would walk down the street or walk down the hall or something. So I'd have to sort of hold the railing as I was going down the steps because it was the silence was like light and everything else was heavy almost. So it's like you feel a little off balance. It was not it was not unpleasant, but it's just this sort of odd thing that was happening. Anyway, this continues to go on a little, a little tube and another little tube goes. And then finally, and this date I remember, January 4th, 1972, the last little tube now, all these tubes had gone quiet, but nothing else had shifted. But the last tube went silent on Jan in January, January 4th. And I would say that from that point on, and it's been a permanent sort of shift, but from that point on, there has been silence at the back of my mind. The most obvious thing that happened was that I noticed that all of the background thoughts, the kind of jumble of thoughts that we often have, what Buddhism calls the monkey mind, just disappeared. Went absolutely away. Never returned. Um... So that what was in my mind, like, if I, if, if I had sort of paid attention to the way my mind worked before this time, I would have said that I would be paying attention to you, for example, but behind this is, don't forget to pick up milk on the way home, and behind that is a little snatch of tune, and behind that is another, oh my God, I'm worried about so-and-so, and, and behind that is another one. And so it's almost like you've got thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and thoughts. Well, imagine you're still thinking. I'm still paying attention to you, but behind that, all the background stuff just, just went away. So it was more like the focus. That the focus became almost perfect, yeah, in a way that I never would have known before. After three years of practice. Yeah, it was unusual. No, it was unusual. I don't know why it happened to me and not other folks. Who knows? Um, so that was very interesting. Another quality of this was that, um, and this is a little harder to describe, but um, but, uh, Hinduism talks about something called they call witnessing your experience, um, and that's like you're sort of looking at something, but at the same time you're aware that there's consciousness back there doing the looking. So you become aware at the same time that you're looking, you're also aware there's consciousness with you doing the looking. So that was that was a very noticeable shift. There were a couple of other things that happened at the same time. The other one, though, that has been interesting, and I've had sort of the most odd thoughts about it, is that my sleep pattern changed. And before that time, when I went out, I was just, when I went to sleep, I was just asleep. After that time, though, now, and this has continued, since I, so when I go to sleep, I'm not quite asleep. It's not like I'm lying there thinking, oh my God, when am I going to get to sleep? Well, that happens sometimes, it probably happens to most people. Um, but it was more that when I wake up, or I noticed this after a week, so when I woke up, I wasn't quite asleep. And it means, what it's really meant is that when the phone rings in the middle of the night, or I have to do something in the middle of the night, uh, there's no transition. It's just like you're awake, because you, you haven't quite been asleep. And it's still rest. Oh. Yeah. 
In fact, probably more so. Probably it's hard to it's hard to remember how it was to sleep before, but yeah, when I sleep, I sleep. Uh, occasionally, that's. Um, I have quite a number of Jungian friends who are always asking me about my dreams, and so whenever they're asking me, I, I dream for a little while, but not so much. That doesn't happen all the time. I don't know how to compare that to the way it was. I know I was dreaming more. So let's say I was dreaming more, and I dream less now, which some people think is a loss. I, I could see it be a loss. Well, other people might say you make your unconscious conscious through meditation, Maybe. and you don't do it in sleep. Yeah, maybe. There's a lot of those sort of unspoken thoughts that come up during meditation, yeah. What are other more advanced stages of spiritual practice or enlightenment? Um, well, the one I'm, I've just described to you, which was the first one that sort of came, and I think it tends to be the first one, it has a kind of a dualistic quality to it. You're in the world, you're looking at what you're doing, you're paying attention to it, but at the same time you also know you're sort of awake and conscious back here. So imagine that, that you're like... Um, Imagine a, um, a an airplane radar. So the radar is usually aware of the airplanes out there. Well, imagine the radar becomes aware that it itself is doing the, the attending to the airplane. So there's a kind of, there's the airplane and here's the radar guy. So there's a kind of dualism in that. Over the years, what I've noticed is two things, two major shifts have happened over the years. The first has been that the world itself became, I don't know quite how to get this, but the world itself became more charming, more alive, as if colors became more vivid, sounds became more um, juicy. And that one, that was about, oh, 10 or 15 years after this started, that sort of the shift in the world I started noticing colors seemed greener, seemed amazing. Green seemed amazing. Yellow seemed like really alive. Sounds started becoming more alive. So that was, that. the book describes that as the second sort of major shift for me. I was going to say phase, but that doesn't quite catch it. Uh, for me, the third one um, is what I read in the literature, and I've, I've studied this stuff quite a lot, so it's you know, I'm giving you both my own experience, but also what I've come to understand. But the third experience for me came probably uh, about 20 years after this thing kicked in. Um, and this one was, well, I was driving along uh, on the highway, and I was looking at one of those little mile markers on the side of the road, and I realized that there was no difference between me and the highway marker. So that what I was looking at felt like it was me, felt like it was part of me, and somehow I was connected to it. Another way to put the same thing, and I actually prefer this way to talk about it, though the mystics, the, the literature doesn't talk about it this way, is there's something a distance between me and things. Like I'm looking at that lamp over there, and I know it's 15 feet away, but I also know there's no there's no distance, but I don't feel a distance in the way I might have someday many years ago, that it's just like it's it's here. So and that's an ongoing? All of this stuff has been ongoing, yeah. Once it shifted in 72, it never went away. Yeah, this is permanent stuff. I think that's the marker of enlightenment stuff, which is that whatever the shift is, it's not temporary. William James in the varieties of religious experience uh, described mystical experience as transient. 
In other words, temporary. And I think he was just wrong. I, I, in fact, I know quite a number of people. Some I know very well, some I know a little. Um, I know quite a number of people with experiences that have been permanent shifts. I, I'm not at all, I don't doubt this at all anymore. I wonder sometimes if, I mean, you've read so much about this and you've yeah. been into it for a long time and you've talked to other people who had these experiences, so you had an idea of what it could be for other people. Uh, so sometimes I wonder if if spiritual people seek these kinds of experiences and because they know that they are there and what they could look like, um, the mind somehow adjusts to that and then enables the experience on an individual level. Possibly. You're now in the debate that I told you I was part of for the first 20 years of my life. Okay. Um, let me say a couple things about that. First of all, in my own experience, and without any question of a doubt, and I can name lots of other experiences, lots of other people on this boat, um, I had heard about enlightenment. In fact, I'd heard a fair amount about enlightenment. But when these shifts happened to me in 1972, honest to goodness, I did not think about it as enlightenment. Because it wasn't what I was ex expecting. It was, it's been so natural and so organic and so un, um, flashy, you know, somehow you sort of imagine enlightenment is going to be this, woo, -hoo, and your hair's going to be on fire and whatnot. And the whole thing has been so low key and so underneath your own experience. It was not what I was expecting. I was expecting, for example, I was expecting for my mind to become completely silent. Well, over the years, 15, 20 years after this shift happened, there have been times where I said to myself, oh, I'm not thinking. Oh, that's interesting. But that's not what happened in the beginning. What happened was the background thoughts went away, but the foreground thoughts didn't go away by any means. And it was many, many years until that shift happened. Um, I never expected the, 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 the change in sleep. What I'd heard was, oh, you're going to sleep. It's going to be different. Um, and when this happened to me, I didn't even recognize it. I just woke up one day and I said, that's weird. I don't feel like I'm going to sleep. But no, I'd never heard a phrase like that. So it wasn't what I was experiencing. Yeah, maybe it was conditioned to some extent by what I'd heard. But I think there's something deeper going on than your expectation. I think there's, there's some shift. And I can tell you that of the stuff that I've read, I've read Christians, I've read Buddhists, I've read, I've read um, you know, Hindus and Taoists, and I'm seeing something that's fairly consistent around the world. So whatever your expectations are, they're not. It's not coming from these different traditions quite so much. So I would say, however, that my need was very serious. And uh, the need for something to kind of somehow save me. And I think that this experience was a kind of an answer to that need, that quest. But it wasn't like I had a need and then this thing sort of comes to me. It was more like grace. You know, it's like I've been lucky enough to have this experience and it has impacted my life, changed my life in very real ways. And I'm, I'm certainly a happier camper than I was then. I don't think it's the need that caused it, but I think that the need led me into this very serious commitment of a kind of a deep quest that was sort of in the middle of my life and path. Now, one of the things the book is about um, is that 
disappearing of illusions. You you explain it or call it spirituality is a field of grand illusions. Tell us more about that. It's this has been very, very central to the discoveries of my life. I think that I'll talk about my own case and then we kind of generalize. I think because I was in serious pain and because I was uh, so very committed, I read a lot about this, about what spirituality would do. I was very hungry for a very different kind of life. And the illusion of spirituality that I received was that your life will become perfect. You won't have any pain. You won't suffer is the phrase that they use. You will be happy. Your marriages will be successful. You'll be more successful in your work. I mean, what we heard was a kind of um, almost a utopian vision of what life was going to be like. And I, I think this vision, though I, I, I was very hungry for it, I didn't make it up. I could read you 20 passages where they promise somebody, the Upanishads, Maharishi, uh, Rinpoche, some of the Zen Buddhist priests, um, they promise a pretty amazing life. And I think it's that promise that draws people in. And I think the promise is there because people so want a life that is easy, effortless, satisfying. And I think that that promise is itself, itself becomes part of the problem. Because now you're sort of Hankering, you have a strong wish. You have a strong hankering for that kind of perfection, and that hankering itself gets in the way of recognizing the transformations that have actually taken place and are continuing to take place. the 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 drive for a perfect marriage gets in the way of a good enough marriage. The drive for to be the perfect parent, the perfect work person, the person, the perfect having a perfect life gets in the way of just enjoying what we do have. The goodness that we do have. So I think that spirituality, the illusion of spirituality, is about the illusion of perfection, and it's it's a hard one to break, you know. And I tell people about this, you know, when I give talks and whatnot, I tell folks about this, and and frankly, people don't want to hear it. You think about. You know, you think about the promise in Hindu language, for example, or in Buddhist language, they talk about nirvana. It's like, whoa, nirvana, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, and it's and people don't want to lose that. People don't want to drop that because it keeps going. You know, or in Hinduism, they talk about Brahman, or they talk about moksha, which means enlightenment. You know, it's like, uh, I didn't want to get rid of that. That's an amazing possibility. It keeps you meditating, it keeps you on the path, it keeps you being determined. I think it's a beautiful idea. But it gets in our way. So why do you think they made it sound so perfect? Because it keeps us going. Because it's, it is a draw. Um, I think if I'm going to be really honest, I, and, and this is not the only thing I want to say, but there's money involved. You know, if I could sell you perfection, you know, you'll, you'll pay me to come... Meditate and do whatever I tell you to do, and and the money is no small matter. There's a lot of money in this world, 
But I think that that might be a westernization of this. I think in, in Eastern religions where money doesn't play quite so much of a role, there's a kind of, there's a kind of quest for this truth that, you know, Shankara teaches and Arjuna teaches and these, these people, these wonderful teachers, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of promise of perfection at the, at the core of what they're teaching. And it keeps people coming. It keeps people, you know, like, it keeps people on the path, and the path itself is a value. I don't say I don't want to say it's not a value. The path itself does a good thing. Help me. So, do you think the old um, spiritual leading figures like the Buddha, um, they were aware that perfection is an elusive goal, or did they actually live it and just kept the illusion up to keep people on the path? You're over my head. I don't know if I can talk about the Buddha. I don't know what his life was like. I can say that when you live a life as a monk, certain kinds of emotional pressures are lessened. That is to say, if you're not truly intimate with another person, sexually, personally, uh, you know, interpersonally, uh, to a considerable extent, the, the emotional challenge is lessened. And I think it becomes easier to be sure that this is enough. Because your own experience says it's enough. I think, though, that for most of us in the West who have children and mortgages and spouses and whatnot, it's, it, it, that, that, this stuff gets much hard, trickier, much harder. Whether or not the Buddha really was living some sort of perfection is, is not within my purview. I can't really say. But I can say this. I have interviewed a lot of spiritual teachers and leaders for the Forge Institute. And I can say without a question of a doubt, I know some pretty wise people. I have never met anyone that's really emotionally that as free as the promise was. And I think that there's a kind of self-delusion that can happen that makes me very, um, very wary when I start hearing somebody say, yes, perfection is possible. This perfection is out there and I can give it to you. When somebody says perfection is possible and I can give it to you, I get very concerned. Because there's a kind of arrogant naivete in that. I, I, you know, one of the things that's been very hard for me to come to terms with, and, it, and I mentioned it in many, many of it's cracked up to me, is I've met an awful lot of wonderful, wonderful spiritual teachers who have an awful lot of good things to say and who have gotten divorced. And I'm, and I think this, there's something wrong here. If this is the best we can do, is not be able to live with people we're intimate with. So. Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of self-delusion that goes on. So divorce, in your opinion, implies a certain amount of self-delusion? Well, if, if you claim that you're living a perfect life and you get a divorce, yeah, <laughs> there's a certain kind of hypocrisy there. I mean, you know, it's like some people really should be divorced. There's no question about it that not every marriage is made in heaven and not every marriage is, you know, we've got the, the ability. But what I've been seeing is too much of a pattern. There's a lot of us. People just move from one problematic relationship. Yeah, never really address the stuff. And, you know, and here, you know, these are meditation teachers and ministers and rabbis and God knows. You know, and it's and, and that's, I think, it's, that's pointing to something for me. It's saying that there's a certain kind of self-delusion going on. And, and I still see it. Which brings us to the question, what, what would a good spiritual teacher look like? Um, you. 
That is to say, I think they dress normally. That's one of the things that's going to be the hardest for us. They don't. They don't have funny. They don't wear funny clothes necessarily. That separates us from each other. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have funny accents. Now, your accent is very slight, but um, you know, we, it used to be if somebody talked like this, you could be pretty sure that they were very, 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 very wise. You know, and I want to say, you know, Indian accents are nice and all, but no, no, no. You know, it's like that's not enough, and I don't want. Uh, so it's like it becomes harder to identify somebody. They don't wear funny clothes anymore, and they don't dress funny, and they don't talk funny. Um, so what's a, what would a really wise spiritual teacher look like? It seems to me a wise spiritual teacher would be very self-aware of their own neuroses. They would be they would have the kind of experiences that are you know that people can have. They would be honest about who they are and are not. They would be modest enough to recognize where they're screwing up. They'd be able to say, yeah, I'm messing this one up. As easily as they can say, yeah, I did that one well. Um, they would have something to offer, something real to offer. They would know what intimacy is and be able to do intimacy. Intimacy is being willing to take on the challenge of continual learning. And I think it's in there that I think a wise spiritual teacher shows his or her colors. Can they really get honest with themselves and with you? In there someplace, I would say. Nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a wonderful question. I don't know the answer to it. My experience has been, as you mentioned earlier, in the West there is so much that tendency to have a spiritual marketplace for money to get involved, which is one distraction, maybe, of the spiritual Well, I, I, you could say it's a, it certainly can get to be a distraction, but truth be told, if you're going to teach people how to do you know, how to become wiser, there has to be some money involved. The way our culture works is, you know, you've got to eat and feed your family and whatnot. So I get paid when I consult and I do spiritual counseling for folks, and I get paid and I expect to get paid. But if but if that's different than that's the deal, you know, there's being a lot of money in it. No, but I get paid for my time. I think that's appropriate. You get paid for your time as a psychotherapist. So how do you feel about, you know, the, the very popular or Wayne Dwyer, or I can't remember the names. People who yeah, are very Mays. public. Yeah, good for them. Um, I, I, I would have to go over them individually and say what I think of their teaching. Um, the fact that they're popular says they're able to put things in the way that a lot of people are responding to, for better and for worse. Um, I have enormous respect for Deepak Chopra, for example. I think the man is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think Ajishanti is a teacher that I have enormous respect for. I think he's wonderful. Um, there are certainly some well-known teachers around that I have just great respect for. And others I think a little, you know, I think that it's a little more charlatan or a little less to it. Um, but, you know, the fact that they're popular doesn't in impact me one way or the other. I kind of listen to what they have to say. Um, I can't say that I follow all the different spiritual teachers around I've been doing this a very long time, and at some point you want to go, yeah, I kind of heard that. <laughs> so I don't. I, I don't follow them all. But, you know, some of them really impressed me. As I say, deep up Chopra, I just think it's amazing. One of the things uh, I've thought about a lot is sort of when is the teacher ready to be a teacher? Um, what my experience has been is that there's a lot of um, narcissistic need um, 
involved in becoming a teacher, that many people want to have that label of being a teacher in whatever denomination in order to boost themselves in a way. And sort of then want to have the title, I'm going to feel better about myself. Very well put. And is there, I mean, is there a, a succession? Do you first have to take care of all your neuroses before you become a teacher? Or can you be a teacher even with some or all of your problems? I don't know anybody that's done with their neuroses, period. Can you become a teacher when you still have some neuroses? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you don't have to have some. If we're going to have any teachers. I think what you're describing is a very real issue in the spirituality world. Pretty much every... And, and, and this is going to sound like I'm thinking like an, an economist, and I guess I am, but the cost of entry is virtually nil in becoming a spiritual teacher. So somebody, anybody can say, hey, I'm a spiritual teacher, and, you know, it's like, how do you do? I've seen quite a number of people who practice something for two or three years and have an experience or two, and think, you know, okay, it's time. And and I think that I think you know, people recognize when you really don't have that much to offer. I think, you know, you sort of have to let the marketplace kind of decide. People decide. It's a kind of an odd way to put it. Um, when we started the Forge, we thought we would become, and, and this may happen yet, but when we started the Forge Guild, we thought we would become a kind of imprimatur. And we, because we did interviews with folks, and we were, we were being pretty careful about who we accepted into the thing. Um, it turned out to be a little harder than I thought when I, when we first started. Um, we may go back to that yet. I don't know. Um, but it's a difficult thing to say. There's no obvious marker. You know, you don't get the stamp of the third eye on your forehead from somebody. The way the traditions work now, um, pretty much everybody is kind of on their own. So it's not like you go to the chief rabbi and he says, okay, you're a rabbi now. Pretty much everybody in the spirituality world, per se, and as the religions grow less and less influential in our world, uh, pretty much everybody is kind of finding their own way. So there's no way for any one group to say, congratulations, you're now a recognized spiritual teacher. There's, there's no group like that. Um, so people just have to be careful, you know. And there is a lot of narcissism involved. There's a lot of sort of self-puffing that goes on. I don't know what to tell people. All I can say is just, you know, be attentive. That's part of the problem. I wish I knew, you know, I, I wish there was like a mark, you know, like you get something on the back of your thumb or something. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, but there isn't one. And it's just, you know, it, does this person strike you as actually wise and do they strike you as actually having something to say? It's a tough call for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is a mystical experience? Ah, a mystical experience. Now here I'm going to tell, I'm going to talk like both a scholar and a person that is a mystic. Um, is a shift in the relationship between what you are and your own consciousness. Or another way to say that is a shift in the relationship between consciousness and its objects. So what I mean by that, if I can translate that into English, um, when I first started, when I was 20, and I looked at this cup, you know, there'd be me looking at the cup, 
and there's a sense of self in here, and there's something of the cup, and I look at the cup, and there's a little of me involved in looking at it, there's a little of the cup, and there's all those thoughts that are involved, and the whole thing is a kind of a jumble when you're, you know, when you're kind of, and this is true for most folks. I mean, it's not a bad thing, it's just the way life is. Well, what happened to me when I was 22 or 24 was that I came to know my own consciousness. There came to be a sense of separation between the sense of consciousness and its objects. Consciousness aware of itself at the same time that I, that I was aware of the cop or of you or of whatnot. So that the relationship between consciousness and its objects went from being kind of a big jumble to being separate, like a dual thing. Well, then over the years, what happened was that that sense of dualism slowly faded so that what, what starts to happen to folks with these sorts of transformations um, is that, you know, consciousness is sort of localized in your body and then it's as if it grows and grows and grows beyond your body, beyond your arms, more than you can reach. And eventually your own consciousness feels like it's sort of big you know, sort of spread out. And then at some point that spread outness comes to see itself as none other than the object, none other than the cop, none other than the microphone. So that the sense of separation now between what consciousness was and its objects, that relationship has now shifted. So that now you sort of see yourself as, well, the word is unity, as in unity with the microphone, in unity with the cup. So that sense of continuity between self and other is now what you experience. So this sort of profound, I want to say existential shift in who you are, or a shift in the relationship between what, what you are to be awake and the content of that awakeness, that goes through a major kind of adjustment. Again, what I was expecting was, and what I was hoping for was, a personality transplant. I wouldn't be the same neurotic, goofy guy that I am. Well, hell, I'm still a neurotic, goofy guy. But now, what happened was I realized that, the, well, the, I've gone through these steps, you know, and I realized that what the goofy guy that I am is now none other than that lamppost over there. And it's an odd sort of way to talk. It sounds very weird. But that's the sort of fundamental shift. Now, when people first have experiences like that, the first time you ever have this sort of thing, is, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of here, and all of a sudden your consciousness opens up, and you realize, whoa, and it feels very dramatic the first time. Well, imagine that you have it a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a twentieth time, and a hundredth time. And after a while, it's just like, oh, yeah, there's that. And then if it becomes permanent, then that just becomes the new nature of what you are. So it's not flashy. It's not fancy. It sounds like it should be really like, woohoo. But it's not like that at all. It's just like this is what you are now. So the shifts like this are the key fact is it's permanent, and the key fact is you just get used to what this is. So like I drove my motorcycle down here, and it's like okay, I'm in I'm one with the objects. I'm also watching out for traffic, and that's just the way you do. You know that's the way I am when I go to sleep tonight. It's like okay, that's just the way I sleep. So the shifts that used to seem like a big deal just are the new norm. And so mysticism, uh, you know, it sounds like it's very distant. It sounds like it's very far away. But mysticism is describing normal 
human evolution. Enlightenment is simply a phase of normal human development. A phase? A phase. Because it's like, you know how they talk in um, quantum physics where, you know, electron is here and it's here and it's here and it's here and then shift into a new phase, you know, so whoop, now there's two electrons, I mean two, two, you're at the second level around the, around the atom. Well, enlightenment is like a phase. You know, it's like my life was going along one way and it's all being a big jumble and then whoop, and now it's in a different, now it's in a different phase and now I'm separate, consciousness is now separate from its subject and I know who I am and I know, I'm now, I know I'm that quiet consciousness back there. Um, so it's, and that becomes the new phase. That's, that's now what I am. So it's like there's a kind of a quantum mechanics talks about a phase transition. There's a kind of a transition that goes on, a sort of shift into something new, and then that becomes the new thing. So what comes after enlightenment? The key emotional tone of enlightenment for me is that the new way to be, consciousness itself, aware of itself, the ability to hold consciousness or be in, to know that one is in consciousness or one is conscious. The key emotional fact of that is it takes zero effort to maintain it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing. It's, if I think about my right hand, I'm not having to sit here thinking to myself, hang on to your right hand. Don't, don't forget to hold on to your right hand. It's, it's just there. That's what you are. It takes no work whatsoever to, to hold on to my right hand. Well, before this shift, it would take sort of a fair amount of meditation and da 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 to go into that open consciousness. After this shift that happened in 1972, then knowing that I was conscious, or better still, experiencing the wide open and effortless quality that is consciousness takes no effort. It would have taken effort beforehand to go into a space like that, to be in that space, but after the shift, it's just who you are, what you are. So it takes no work. Well, that, let, let, me, let me go on with this, just and then we'll come back. That quality is a kind of magnet for my life. So that I went into psychotherapy, for example, some eight years after this happened. And in the beginning, stuff was really painful to talk about. Uh, you know, bringing up memories and bringing up struggles I was having. is very hard to talk about. The invitation of consciousness is, can I face into my own pain as effortlessly as I can hold on to consciousness? Can I be with you? Can I be with myself as effortlessly as I can be in consciousness? Can I be in school? Can I learn? Can I struggle without any hesitation at all, the same as it takes no hesitation to be in consciousness? So for me, the real challenge that enlightenment issues and it's a very real challenge, is can I be open enough to become truly intimate with other human beings in a way that has very little hesitation? It's not to say 
First of all, the word intimacy, and let me talk about that for one second. Intimacy sort of connotes sexual intimacy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of intimacy you feel with somebody when you get into a very honest conversation, late at night, middle of the day, when you're really telling what's, what, what you're really dealing with. That's, that's what intimacy is about for me. And can I be in that kind of conversation? Can I be in conversations in such a way that it is that effortless to go anywhere in that conversation? There's no defense. It's not to say, I don't want to be defended when I need to be defended. You know, there's some people that are dangerous. And I don't know. That's craziness. But with people that I think are reasonably trustworthy, can I be that undefensive that I can talk about things in a way I'm not confident, that I can be straight when I'm struggling, or that I can be straight when I'm screwed up, that I can be straight when I'm proud? Can I be that open with other people? That's the invitation enlightenment issues because it says you can be effortless. Well, can I be effortless where the rubber meets the road, which is in marriage, in relationship, in friendship? Can I be that open and that effortless in the rest of my life? That's, I think, the challenge that the spiritual world really invites us to. So when you talked earlier about union and how easy it comes to you to feel union with objects, how about people? Yeah, that's been harder. I can, there's a kind of metaphysical union I have with you, but to be able to be that close to you and to be able to let you in and to be that undefended with you, that's much trickier. It's one thing to say, yes, I experience my unity with lampos. You know, it's like, who cares? You know, it's like, okay, you got a unity with a tree. Wow, how cool is that? But then to be able to say, I have no hesitation when I'm dealing with you no hesitation when I'm talking with a friend, when I'm talking with somebody that I, I've been hanging out with. And I think that, that my work in the Forge Institute and the work on this program that we're calling Soul Jazz is precisely here. The real challenge that the spiritual world issues is, can you bring it down into your everyday life? And what's the trick of doing that? The trick of doing that is being willing to be honest where you're actually vulnerable and where you're a little worried, and where you're a little afraid. Are you willing and able to let that stuff out, even when you're a little anxious about doing that? That, I think, is what enlightenment invites us to. The spiritual world invites us to that level of self, what's the word I'm looking for, revelation, self, you know, telling of what you're about, self-revealing. Um, I think that's really what this stuff is inviting us to. And I think... That's the discovery that's at the core of the book. That I was, the illusion that I was facing was, oh, life will be perfect if only you can do spiritual stuff, if only you can meditate. The real challenge that, that I began to see in the course of my life is, okay, you got effortlessness, you got what the spiritual world gives you, now how do you bring it into your real life? How do you really live this stuff? And that's, the, so the Soul Jazz program, plug, souljazzonline.com www.souljazzonline.com um, is the real challenge is that that this that the spiritual world issues is how do you live this stuff in your everyday life? Mm-hmm. How do you really bring it in? How do you really learn to do this in such a way that you're not pulling away from pretty much everything you know and everything everybody you know? So when we talk about relationships and how hard, especially very close relationships, how hard they are, how does spirituality uh, differentiate? from psychology 
when you sort of look at your own anxieties and being upset, what am I going to do with my anger? I don't think there's a clean line between those two. I think that there's a sort of fuzzy relationship between those two. But the way I would put it is psychology is very good at dealing with things when they're really wrong, when they're difficult, when you're in pain, etc. Psychology gets you to go. In other words, as opposed to being highly defended, psychology is very good at getting you to be able to, okay, see your defenses and, and kind of let them go. But spirituality takes over when you are reasonably sane. So psychology gets you to go. Spirituality is where you go once you've gotten to go. <laughs> so it's the second step. It's like the second step, yeah. You don't go to a psychologist when you're pretty sane because you're not in pain. You go to a psychologist because you're in pain. Psychologist is great at helping you out of pain. Well, people don't come to me because they're in pain. People come to me because they want to keep going and they want to know how to do that. So that's in your experience? That oh, yeah. The people who are interested in spirituality are more interested in the second step? Well, people, people get interested in spirituality because they're in pain, generally. Mm-hmm. You know, and they want to solve the problem. But, you know, it works. So they solve the problem. Then the question becomes, now where? So when I talk about spirituality, I, what I would say is soul work in specific, which is what the Soul Jazz program does. Soul work I would define as being able to do um, transformation in a condition of intimacy is soul work. So where you know it touches into the spiritual life, it touches into your ego, but it's like, okay, how do we keep developing? How do we keep growing? How do we keep going? We're reasonably sane. We've reasonably got our life put together. How do we keep the process moving? How do we keep developing? Where do we go? And here's where I think vulnerability and anxiety are kind of markers, kind of gateways for further development. So it's like you let go of where you've been, you let go of something, and you discover another aspect of yourself and another and another. So psychology gets you to the point where you're strong enough to take that challenge on, it seems to me. Um, And a good psychologist is very good at helping folks do this. But then where? How do we do this from this point? It's not only a psychological matter. It's a matter of courage. And it's a matter of self-awareness and moving on, moving that stuff on. So what is the soul? Uh, um, the way I like to draw this is imagine the spiritual side is on your right. And I don't know why I say right, but it's supposed to laugh. But the spiritual side is over there and your ego and everyday concerns and your need for order and your need for control, imagine that's on your left. The soul sort of is in the middle, and it taps something of your spiritual life, something of the openness to the infinite, and it taps something of the ego. And the soul is that process, that place where that process goes on and on and on of discovering, oh, I'm dealing with this kind of person here. How do I do that? And how can I be tapping into the silence when I'm dealing with this kind of person, and how can I be tapping into silence when I'm facing this kind of challenge at work? So it's it's the side, the aspect of it that keeps developing and keeps growing and sort of continually moving along and along and along, even in the context of our everyday challenges. So soul is somehow that that facet of us, that element of us that is able to keep moving and tapping both sides of us. Does this make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brings me to the word silence. You use it a lot in your writing, and it's been a great part of your experience. Yeah. It's hard to know how to talk about that. It's pretty quiet. 
Um, my experience, when, when this thing dawned in 1972, one of the things that has become, that I, I sort of noticed back then, but has become more and more obvious, is that the element of my life that turned on, kicked in, became part of my life in 1972 and that day in January, um, I would say the the most noticeable quality of it is it does not have any content. So imagine that you're sort of looking at a great, enormous chasm, like the Grand Canyon. You look at the Grand Canyon and you know you're looking at something that's just enormous and wide open, and you know that you're looking 10 miles away, but it looks like it's here. You have this sense of wide open space. But in that space, before you get to the pillars of the Grand Canyon, you have nothing there that has any content to it. It is absolutely silent. So there's a piece of your life, and I think a lot of people know this experience, there's a piece of our life that is wide open and yet without content. In other words, silent. And when I say silent, it's it's absolutely quiet. So that I, for me, I, I count on that. I count on being able to sort of, you ask me a question, I count on being able to sort of drop back into that place of silence and then answer. So that there's a kind of, and when I meditate, you know, there's a, there's a real quiet that, that gets established. And when I go off on retreat, which I do every year, that quiet gets very, very deep. I don't feel that kind of depth of quiet in my everyday life. I'm a little too busy, but I go off on retreat, and after a day or two, it's like, you know, it's like there's a sense of just, you know, it's like there's a kind of dropping into this wide-open, silent space. The Buddhists call um, the, the quality of the Buddha mind, that I think they're pointing to the same thing, the word they use is shunyata. Shunyata means empty, so empty of content. Or the, the, the Hindus say Brahman uh, is with form and without form. And by that they mean that Brahman sort of becomes your active life, but it's also by itself, it's without any content at all. And I think pretty much all the traditions, Meister Eckhart, for example, talks about Godheit, the Godhead. And what he means by that is that it's the God beyond imagery, the God beyond content. So this notion of something that's completely silent, Without any content, I think is, I think we see it all over the world. I think this is very common for people like me that have these sorts of experiences. So I think yes, and so for me, the two words I like to use for this stuff, as it were, is silence and the vastness. And what I mean by the vastness is that that um, fairly soon, as this stuff had kicked in, I was noticing that there was a sense of spread outness to it, of wide open space. So it's vast, you know, and it's, I can't I can't sense the edge. I can't sense the end. So all you all you know is there's a kind of vast quality of in the middle of all this, um, and that's what I think. That's a kind of a very unloaded way to talk about this. If you talk about God, there's a lot of history to that word, but vastness is a pretty neutral term, and that kind of catches it for me. The vastness. Yeah. So how is that for your wife when you talk? <laughs> she thinks I'm mad about my wife. Um, how is it for my wife? 
she respects what I do. She thinks extremely differently. Um, she is a very practical woman. She um, she's highly principled. She finds she finds her spiritual life is sort of centered on things that she can do for the family, for the friends, and whatnot. So she's she's a very practical woman, and she doesn't share this experience with me. So for her, it's um, you know it's interesting to hear. She's sort of stunned that I'm quite as bold about talking about this stuff as I am. So she's a much more sort of modest shy kind of person. So. Do you wish or did you find yourself wishing sometime in the past that she would share that with Of course. Yeah. yeah, it's a real marriage. You know, we, we try, we've had to work through this stuff and we've done it moderately well, I would say. So, yeah, of course. And when I find people that are sort of get it, it's easy to kind of fall into that. Um, I've been a good boy, never had an affair, but you know, I've been quite drawn to some other folks and she too. But I think that what you get from a long-term relationship is the, the grown-up, mature love that comes with being different and still valuing each other for our differences. Or as um, Roka put it, to be respectful and to protect the other person's solitude. In other words, to not try to force the other person into who you are, make them into what you are. I think that's the real challenge. It's easy to get to sort of assume the other person's going to make you feel good about who you are. It's much more difficult to feel good about the other person for their differences. But this, of course, has been an issue for us. It's been difficult to work our way through. Well, that's what seems to be the path in a way, looking at it as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Couples today look at, couple them so much from a perspective of fusion and a likeness, and if my partner isn't like me, then he's the wrong partner, and that the journey really is to understand that there's two separate people trying to have a partnership. Yeah, and value each other for your very differences. That's that's very, very difficult. Yeah, that is the truth. And sometimes I wonder if in spirituality there is the same phenomenon, that because it's so much about union and... Um, <laughs> And Good for you, yes, yes. Uh, how does this fit together? Well, remember, in the very beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the illusions of the spiritual path, and I think one of the illusions of the spiritual path is you will find your soulmate, and when you see them, the lights will glow, and everything will be wonderful. Oh, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard people tell me that they found their soulmates, and within five years, they have separated, divorced, split up. It's, you know, I think there's a great deal of sort of fantasy of what that, what that union is going to look like, fantasy of the perfect marriage. Sure, and I had a fantasy of the enlightened marriage. Yeah, I had to work that one through. That was a bear. <laughs> you came out all right. <laughs> you came out okay. <laughs> yeah. One of the things you write, or you write in your book, uh, and a quote is, or, or when you talk about, well, why am I doing this? Where, where do we get to at the end of this journey? You write, you get to stand bent under the burdens of fewer and fewer of your own lies. I found that very impressive. Well, let me talk about that, the notion of bent, because I want to read you a passage, and it also uses this notion of bent. 
Um, when I, it wasn't long after I came out of this long retreat and I'd had this experience, I was very surprised at the fact that I continued to shoplift a little bit. And I think I did it as much for fun and the challenge of it and just to see if I could do it. But there was also a little greed involved. It was like I was getting something for free and that was kind of nice. Um, but whenever I, and I noticed this, that when I took something, and I remember there was there was a little box of spaghetti that I stole once, and I put it in a glove, and I was very proud of myself. But I realized after the fact that when I was in that grocery store and carrying this little box of spaghetti, 15 cents I made, carrying this little box of spaghetti around, I was, even though I was standing up straight inside, it was like I was crouched, like I was bent over, as if, I was worried that somebody was going to see me. So even if I was standing up straight, and I don't know if I was or not, but even if I was standing up straight inside, it felt like I was crouched. And I think that that's what a slight bit of defense feels like for me. It feels like you're sort of crouched. It's like, whoa, got to kind of protect yourself. Whatnot. And I think the spirituality world, and, and certainly the challenge of becoming more honest and more vulnerable, I think the challenge is can you stand up straight more and more of the time? And you'd be really okay with what you are and not. So that's, can I read you a passage? It might be the same passage, I just want to read a little more of it. Um, again, when I started this whole thing, I thought that um, it was going to make me happy. But that's not what it did. That's not what it does. And this, this passage, which comes right towards the end of the book, I think it has kind of captured a little something of how I feel about my own commitment to this path of growth. Rather than happiness, or what the Hindus call ananda, which is their word for happiness, I think, in the end, what you get is to become ever more real. You get to stand bent under the burdens of fewer and fewer of your own lives. That's the passage you read. With your feet planted ever more deeply into the soil of what is so, you get to become ever more vertical, and that quality of being able to stand up straight kind of catches, I think, the difference in how this feels. And you get to discover with and to invite a few others who wish to do the same. I think that the idea that you can be increasingly honest with some very dear friends um, I think is part of the privilege here. And I think that that's, that's part of the challenge, but I think it's part of the gift of this, of this whole thing. What the spiritual path offers is not unmingled happiness. And it's not the conventional, it's certainly not every day. Nor is it camaraderie, friendship, or ease, though these may come. What you get instead is to be increasingly open to the joy and the melancholy that is the deeply lived life. You get to be more honest about your own sadness and more honest about your own joys. In the end, you get to be increasingly alive, the mystery coursing up your spine. You get to be more awake, more deeply honest, freer, and to stand up straighter and straighter in it. You get to be, in all its ancient simplicity, a human being. A nice final word. Oh, yes. So the book is called Enlightenment Ain't What It's Cracked Up To Be, and I'd like to invite people to take a look at the website called Soul Jazz Online. Mm -hmm. And let me say that I, I commend you for doing this. I think this is the challenge of having really good conversation, intelligent conversation with people that have done some work, there's too much hype in our world. And the idea that you can have conversations with 
some folks and offer this to the world that is thoughtful and juicy and intelligent, I think that our culture needs more of it. And I commend you for doing it. And I know I'm the first, and I hope I'm not the last. And this has been a real joy to do this. So thank well, you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you.